0: Um, So while I'm just um, nattering away, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Luke 19. That's where we're going to be today. Luke 19 and verse 28. So um, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been looking at our um, Encounters series, a series of sermons looking at people that encountered Jesus. And that's been tremendously helpful. And um, so today starts um, this, this new series, a little mini-series, two-week mini-series, especially for Easter, and it's called The Journey. So we've got Palm Sunday today, we've got Easter Sunday next weekend. So I hope this is helpful for you. So if you're in, um, if you're in Luke's Gospel now, so Luke 19, verse 28, I'm just going to read. Um, it says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where, on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Lord, we just want to thank you for your word to us today, Lord. Thank you that your word is alive, it's fresh, it's new, it's supernatural. It's it's the word of God. And we say, Holy Spirit, would you teach us today? Would you plant your word afresh in our hearts, Lord? Change us, Lord, for your glory. Change us to be more like Jesus, for your glory. Amen. Amen. Okay, well-known passage. I'm sure we all know that passage. But um, back in the day, I was a teacher, and um, one year we took a group of pupils to Israel on a holiday, or um, educational visit, as we used to call them. And um, we saw all the usual sites, we saw Nazareth, we saw um, the tomb where Jesus' body was laid, we saw the temple, and we went up the Mount of Olives. And um, when you stand on the Mount of Olives, that's the view you get looking back at Jerusalem. So you can tell it's the out of olives, because there's, there's a couple of olive bushes here, see, proof. And uh, we're looking across the valley there, that's the Kidron Valley. And then this, is, this thing's called the Dome of the Rock. Now today it's a, it's a Muslim temple, but it's on a thing called Temple Mound. The area's called Temple Mound, and that's where the temple's always been. So as Jesus and the disciples are coming into Jerusalem, that's pretty much the view they're going to get you know, save for the cranes and the high-rise blocks and stuff like that, and the temple looks a bit different. But that gives you a sense of what they saw. And, and, and all, the, all the pilgrims would be coming, you know, probably down this dual carriageway here, I don't know. They're coming into the city there. So loads of pilgrims. So that's kind of the sense of what Jesus was, was looking at during this time. And this is where we pick up the story, on that road. Now, today is the Sunday before Good Friday, isn't it? Next weekend's Easter weekend. So today's the Sunday... Good Fridays, when Jesus was, was, was hanging on the cross and when he was killed. And um, interestingly, historians that have got far more time on their hands than I have have kind of plotted through and said, well, when did these events actually take place? And it's reckoned that this story that we've just read takes place on the Sunday, leading up to Easter week, as we call it now, with Jesus being crucified on the Friday. So it's great that we're actually looking at this story kind of on the anniversary of the day when it happened, at the time, there was a chap called Josephus, who was, um, a, he, he wasn't a Christian, but he was a, he was a Jew, and he would write history about the time. And his writings are really helpful for us when we're looking at the Bible, to kind of go and look at other writings around and see, well, what do other writings say about the Bible? He says this, at the time, there were about 250,000 lambs slain to feed the people that arrived in Jerusalem. 250,000 lambs, because that's what they ate during Passover. And Josephus reckons that 250,000 lambs equates to about two to three million pilgrims coming into the city. So that's a staggering number of people coming into the city. And this is the main route from the north into the city. So there'll be people coming in from all directions, but you see there's going to be a lot of people here. The city is teeming, the city's buzzing, everyone's in a jubilant mood. It's a festival, it's kind of a holiday period. Everyone's really excited about Passover coming together. So that's kind of the backdrop for our story today. I wanted to look, as we, as we look at this passage, I wanted to answer three questions if we possibly can. First of all, I wanted to look at why did Jesus come the way he did? If we can just toggle the slide now. Why did Jesus come the way he did? Secondly, why did the crowd respond the way they did? And thirdly, why did Jesus weep the way he did? So first of all, why did Jesus come the way he did? And as I was looking at the passage, I started to ask questions like, why is there such an emphasis on the mechanics of getting hold of the donkey? See, the passage could have said, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and that would have been fine. We'd have gone, no problem with that at all. But the, Luke spends quite a lot of time going through, well, you're going to go and get the donkey, it's going to be tied up, there's going to be a colt, um, someone's going to ask you. There's quite a lot of the kind of mechanics of that is, is, is kind of talked about. And if you look at the other gospel accounts, so this story appears in all four gospel accounts. They're all quite similar, they all spend quite a lot of time on that. Why has that passage gone into so much detail? Why did they buy the donkey? Why didn't, why didn't they just, well, you know, probably one of them had a donkey, and actually walking into town and going, here's a donkey, I'm just going to untie it and we'll walk off with it. And it's theft, isn't it, really? It's donkey theft, it's like carjacking, it's the same. <laughs> why would you do that, you know? And then Jesus actually, interestingly, anticipates the questions they're going to get asked someone's going to say, hey, you're stealing my donkey. And you're going to go, the Lord has need of it. <laughs> you know, if someone's stealing my car, and they go, hey, I'm going to go, forget it, that's my car. That's not going to wash with me. So I, I just found it a really interesting, interesting question, really. And then the other question is, everybody else walked into Jerusalem. What's with Jesus? Why is he got to ride a donkey? So I think this is kind of worth looking at. And, and, and as I looked at it, I think what the gospel writers, Luke and the others, are all saying is they're making a point that these events didn't take Jesus by surprise. He's, he's, he's coming into Jerusalem. They, 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 they call it the passion of the Christ. It's where Jesus is going to suffer. It's the Passover festival. We know what's going to happen through this week, and Jesus knew as well. None of this took him by surprise. He's very aware how it's all going to play out. And I think all of that detail about go, get the donkey, this is going to happen, is just demonstrating that, really. You see, in all of this, Jesus' sovereignty is being revealed. Luke is writing to draw our attention to that. He's going, don't miss this. This is Jesus revealing his sovereignty. He's God. That's what Luke's saying. Jesus knew what was going to happen. And Luke's deliberately pointing to the carefully planned choreography of the whole passage and actually the whole week that's going to play out. Jesus isn't thinking on his feet. This isn't spontaneous or accidental. It's divinely planned. It's all deliberate, every detail. It's all intentional. Jesus was knowingly and deliberately and publicly identifying himself and revealing himself to be the long-awaited Messiah, the chosen one. And he enters Jerusalem quite deliberately to kind of make that plain for, for, for all, for all history, for all time. A humble servant who in a few days is going to suffer horribly for his people. You see, 500 years prior to this, a prophet called Zechariah was writing these words about Jesus. And we can read them in the Old Testament in Zechariah 9:9. but they should be on the screen here for us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, Your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. For 500 years, these words went unfulfilled until this very moment. Why didn't Jesus walk into Jerusalem? Well, he planned it this way, to publicly proclaim he's the Messiah, the chosen one. And he was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. His action is like a sort of living parable. It's interesting, if you look in the Old Testament, quite often prophets would act out their prophecies and they're acting out what's going to happen. Well, Jesus is kind of acting out the fulfillment of the prophecy. The prophecy says he's gonna ride on, on this donkey and that's exactly what he does. He's fulfilling that prophecy. You may remember the story of David, King David in the Old Testament. And as he's, as he's just dying, he knows he's gotta hand the kingship onto somebody else. And he says, I'm gonna hand it on to Solomon. But his other sons are arguing about it, tussling about it. And so David says, no, I've already chosen Solomon. This is in 1 Kings chapter one. And he says, have, so- have my son Solomon ride on my own mule. Long live King Solomon says David. It's a demonstration of kingship. And this passage echoes back to that as well. Jesus is saying, yeah, King Jesus. He's kind of pointing to that. He doesn't enter as one unaware of the events that are going to happen that week. He's not an uninformed victim of terrible events. These aren't unintended consequences. None of this. None of what's going to happen this week. He plans it all. He initiates it. He's like he's saying, he's shouting, Zechariah was writing about me. I'm the fulfillment, I am God. That's what he's saying to us through these these actions. And Jesus understood all that and embraced it, even the excruciating death that he was gonna be facing at the end of the week. Deliberately planning, scheming these events so that he could die on the cross for the benefit of you and me so that we could be saved for our sins. He's saying, I am the shepherd shepherd king, the fulfillment of all of that Old Testament prophecy. Amazing. Significant to note, I think, that in previous passages, if you look at this kind of chronologically, Jesus, the start of Jesus' ministry, he's, he's out in the countryside, he's in the villages, he's in small groups, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking one on one, he talks to a family, He's not in the hustle and bustle of the city. And interestingly, when he, when he heals people, you, we very often hear him saying, look, don't, don't make a big deal about this. Don't tell people about me. Don't reveal that I'm the Messiah. Don't publicize the fact that this is God made man. That's, that's his kind of modus operandi for most of his ministry. But this is like a step change. This is him choosing the busiest place there is in the region and going, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to have all fingers pointing at me going, look, this is God. I'm going to orchestrate a load of signs to say God is in our presence. It's quite a different approach from anything he's done before. So I think one of the reasons he came the way he did was to fulfill those prophecies. Another, another reason was, I think, because he was a humble servant king. As I said, I was a... I was a teacher back in the day, and our, our very first car was this lovely, rusty old 1967 Morris Minor. It was a beautiful thing in a kind of weird way, really. But um, this, was, this was before we had kids, not surprisingly, and uh, Belinda was a high-flying chartered accountant, and I, and I was a teacher. So she was all like business lunches, expense accounts, sharp suits, you know, the kind of thing. I was all elbow pads, chalk dust, comfortable shoes, you know? No offence if you're a teacher, but... Uh, <laughs> and interestingly, every morning, we'd walk out the house. We lived in this little terraced house in Wimbledon. We'd walk out the house. She'd turn right and get into a fabulous British Racing Green Jaguar XJ6. It was gorgeous. I'd go this way, climb aboard our rusty old Morris Minor, and off we'd go. It was like the start of a sitcom from the 1970s. And um, so, why am I telling you this? Well. In a funny way, I know what it is to travel humbly. (laughs) As you can imagine, when I got to school every day, I got quite a lot of stick from the school children about my rusty old Morris Minor. It didn't go unnoticed. But seriously, that doesn't compare, does it, with the god of the universe riding on a smelly donkey. They're not pleasant donkeys, are they? They smell, flea ridden. The god of the universe is riding on one of these. So not only was it the fulfilment of prophecy, it was a compelling example of Jesus' humility. This is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of kingdom. God incarnate, fully God, fully man, riding on a humble little donkey. The manner of his entrance to the city proclaims, this is the humble, suffering servant king. You see, this wasn't what they were expecting. the the, the Jewish people were expecting their king to arrive. Now, if you say the king's coming to town or the queen's coming to town, I think, you know, gold carriages, state occasion, plumage, you know, everyone's looking in their finery, da-da-da-da, or, If if you say, like, influential ruler is putting on some big display, I think North Korea, I think those big military displays. I mean, those things are designed to either stir up national pride, stir up well-being, stir up fear, stir up something on a big scale. This isn't what you get with Jesus at all, is it, on this occasion? You know, the Jews are used to seeing generals coming back from from wars with all their spoils of war, their their, kind of accoutrements of victory with their weapons and their gold and their big white horses. What a contrast. What a contrast, Roman glory and Jesus' humility. What kind of a king rides the colt of a donkey? Are you serious? But ask yourself, what happened to the Roman glory? What happened to all of that? It soon disappeared, didn't it? But Jesus established a kingdom that will never end. This is no ordinary man riding a donkey, this is God himself, unlike any other king that ever lived. So as well as saying that it's the fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus was making it clear too, he's the humble servant king and his kingdom is like no other. Interestingly, this passage is entitled The Triumphal Entry, and I even left that on the passage that we, that we put up there. Just to be clear, if you're not familiar, Scripture, the Bible, is not the subheadings and the numbers and the chapters and that stuff. That's kind of added by editors later. The Bible, the word of God, it's just the text, and someone's put in the numbers to help us navigate. Someone's put in the subheadings to help us navigate it. Now, I think if the Queen was to ride through Kingston, you'd call it a triumphal entry. Or, you know, North Korea, that big d- display of military, what's the name, you might call that a triumphal entry. I'm not sure it's the right word for this passage. This doesn't say triumphal entry to me. It's not a triumphal entry, is it? It's a death march. It's a death march. Jesus has orchestrated this as his walk to the cross it's not a triumphal entry at all. So he's a humble God. Jesus is also the God of all history, the Lord of history. We haven't got time for this this morning, but in addition to displaying foreknowledge about the donkey and all that kind of stuff, he displays foreknowledge of the Lord's Supper when they had that Passover meal, Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, the disciples deserting him, his deliverance to the Gentiles, his scourging, the humiliation, the execution. He announced all these things in advance. In the previous chapter, he says this to his disciples in Luke 18. It says, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man, that's the term he uses for himself, everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he, that's Jesus, he himself, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked, shamefully tried, and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. On the third day, he'll rise again. So he, he predicts, that. he tells them about this, he's got history in his hands. Interestingly, it then goes on to say, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. So even though the disciples didn't get that Jesus was the Lord of history, that's exactly what he is. He's Lord of the big things and the little things. And do you know what? That means he's Lord of every single detail in your lives today, right now. Whatever, whatever springs to mind when I say that, he's Lord of it. Amazing. So why did Jesus arrive in this way? Well, Jesus arrived in this way because he's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the servant king, that humble servant king, and he's the lord of history. So let's move on to the next question. Why did the crowd react in this way? Well, as I've said, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled by about an extra two to three million people during this Passover festival. And they'd be jubilant, they'd be celebrating, there'd be a real air of kind of confidence there. What did they make of Jesus riding this, this humbled donkey? As we've seen, this is a deliberate act on Jesus' part. It's premeditated, intentional, he's planned it all. Now by contrast, the crowd's reaction is all spontaneous, isn't it? They just turn up, see what's happening, they celebrate, they meet people, people are coming up, they're cheering, they're clapping. There's a real party mood going on. You know what it's like here when we have a royal wedding, or something like that, or when it was the Queen's birthday. There's a real kind of lift in the kind of public um, attitude and expectations. And I I kind of think it was probably the same here. Everyone's having a good time. So as the pilgrims climb the road into Jerusalem, that picture we saw, as they're coming up that road, the people that are there already are kind of around about the edge of the city, lining that road. It wasn't uncommon for the people that were already there to greet the new arrivals by singing over them, shouting psalms over them, praising God. That's what this was all about. So it wasn't uncommon for them to recite Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 says this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now interestingly, the word we, we use, Hosanna, which is a kind of, it, we, we say the word Hosanna today. If you could go back to New Testament times, it's the same word, Hosanna. That's what they said. And they took it from the Old Testament. If you could go back to Old Testament times, you'd hear the word Hosanna. It's the same word. And it means, save us, we pray. So it's the first line of that psalm. Save us, we pray, O Lord. So in fact, As the crowd was shouting, save as we pray, Lord, or Hosanna, it in itself, that statement in itself, isn't a clear indication that they understood Jesus to be the Messiah. That's just what they did. As people were coming up that path, that's just what they did. They shouted psalms over one another. They sang psalms over one another. They were commonly sung at all these festival occasions. They weren't specifically using it in a kind of messianic way, saying Jesus is the Messiah. William Lane, the author, he's commenting on this same passage, but in Mark's gospel. And he says this, it was a brief moment of enthusiasm outside the city walls, which would have been appropriate to a royal enthronement, but at the same time was scarcely distinguishable from the exaltation which characterized other groups of pilgrims when the city of David, with its magnificent table, temple, came into view, as we saw in the picture. So that's one thing to think about. Another thing to say is, they were expecting a different kind of Messiah. So despite what the prophecies said and despite the fulfillment of those, they were still expecting a different kind of Messiah as we've said. So they're not pointing at Jesus going, this is our Messiah. God has become man. That's not, I don't think, how you you read all those passages together. Even Jesus' disciples didn't fully understand who he was. Again, if we look at one of the other accounts, the same passage in John's Gospel, it gives the little prophecy from Zechariah about the the donkey. Immediately, John says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, that means when he'd, he'd been killed on the cross and he died and he'd risen and gone to heaven again. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the disciples weren't thinking, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah, he's God. They weren't thinking that either. It's worth pointing out that just prior to this, he'd come from um, Bethany, where Mary, uh, uh, Martha and Lazarus lived, and he'd, he'd just raised Lazarus from the dead. So he's coming into town as the guy that just raised Lazarus from the dead. So he's definitely a local celebrity. There's definitely a buzz about Jesus. You know, they'll know he's the guy that heals people. He's the guy that can prophesy. He's the guy that can raise the dead and make blind people see. So he definitely would have drawn a crowd, but I don't think the crowds really understood what was going on, that this was Jesus' death march, death march as, as savior of the world. We understand the profound nature of this now with the benefit of hindsight, and we can see all the subsequent events. It's it's kind of surprising, but the disciples, three years living with Jesus, and still they missed it. That's what the Bible says. William Lane, the author also, in that same book, points out that only Jesus knew the messianic significance of his actions, that he was the Messiah, he was the chosen one. But in that, he was alone alone. He was surrounded by this yelling crowd, none of whom were aware that he was journeying to the cross. He planned it alone, he traveled it alone, he went to the cross alone. And there's that brutal bit, isn't there, on the cross where we hear that the sin that he carried on the cross, because that's what he did when he went on the cross, he carried our sin, that separated him from the Father. So God the Son, Jesus, separated from God the Father. That's alone. What a stark definition of alone. Awful, really. They reach the city, and if you look at all these passages together, you see that the crowd, they're a bit fickle, really. They, 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 they move on. They, they're kind of shouting to Jesus now, whoa, whoa, fantastic, you're, Hosanna, save us, Lord. And then something else happens over here, and they, they go over there, their, their attention's caught. A real contrast with Jesus, patient, deliberate, intentional, faithful, way of working, the way he's a faithful saviour to us. The crowd, they come, they shout, they wave, they recite some psalms, then their attention's drawn elsewhere and off they go. How fickle humans are, hey? The God of the Bible's there. He's coming into the city to die for their sins. It's the pivotal event in eternity and yet they're distracted and drawn away. Does that remind you of anyone? It reminds me of me. Does it remind you of you? (laughs) Do you remember the parable of the sower? Um, The seed is scattered and some of it falls in good soil and it grows up and that's great, and some of it falls in weeds. It says, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. And it, as a picture, it just reminded me of some of those crowds. You know, the, the seed falls. Oh, oh, hurrah, hurrah, Hosanna. Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, somebody else is over here. And, and you know, they didn't follow Jesus to the cross, did they? Their, their, their discipleship, if you can call it that, stops short. They kind of, you know, they see this guy coming into town and then they're distracted by something else over here. Someone said, discipleship is following the man on the donkey all the way. And I just really, that really challenged me. Does my discipleship look like that? Or am I a kind of fair-weather Christian? Do I, do I follow Jesus up to a point? And then I go, well, that's a bit hard for me. <laughs> you know, the cost to me of taking that step, that's a bit too painful. I don't know. I just found that really challenging. Why did the crowds react in that way? Well, because they weren't expecting their Messiah to ride into town that day. Are you, are you expecting to meet Jesus today? You see, God's near approach isn't always as we would like or expect it to be. But don't miss it, (laughs) don't miss it. And that kind of brings us on to our next section, really, why Jesus wept. So the first part of the passage we we read together um, describes Jesus' arrival into the city. Um, Let's just pop the second part of the passage up again just as a reminder. So Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. So just wanted to have a look at this bit now. Um, The author, David Garland, writes a commentary about these things. And he says, Jesus comes into the city and he comes as a king who will be crowned with thorns and he'll be enthroned, but on a cross. He'll be hailed, but as chief of fools, he says. Garland's thinking about Jesus' crucifixion, all those things, that's a picture of Jesus' crucifixion. So he's coming as a king, but he gets a different kind of welcome, really. And why why did he do that? He did it because he loves sinners like you and me. And when he weeps over Jerusalem, that's a demonstration of the love he has for sinners like you and me. He knows that in just 70 short years, Jerusalem will be totally destroyed. The people will be scattered. Jesus knows that because he's the the Lord of history. We said that. And he feels sorrow for that situation. Now, he's God. So he, he knows the end of the book. He's got the assurance of a perfect plan. He knows a perfect plan for everybody in that city. He knows that, and he's confident in that, because it's a perfect plan. But he still feels deep sorrow. You see, knowing and trusting God is in control doesn't mean you can't cry. There is no ambiguity there. There's no dilemma. This morning, you can, you can know... Surety and trust that God's in control of your life and your heart can still be tender and moved. There's so much pain in the world, isn't there? Every day we're hearing horrible new stories on the news. So much suffering around us, even, even in this room on that, on that grand scale and on a local scale. Jesus had a tender heart and he wants us to have tender hearts too. It'd be great to be a church that prays that God would give us tender hearts to one another. Jesus felt compassion for Jerusalem and wept for Jerusalem. I'm challenged. You know, I ask myself, when was the last time I wept for someone else's losses? It's a tough question. I think sometimes I'm so wrapped up in my own world that I can completely miss the hurting of others around me. Let's be a people that have got tender hearts like Jesus. So, We've looked a little bit at why Jesus came the way he did, why the people responded the way they did, and why Jesus wept the way they did. But we're going we're to wrap up now. And as we close, I just want to go back to that crowd again, if we can, for a moment. Um, you see, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. They were expecting a king, like I said, some great military leader to come into town, like David who's going to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression and going to establish God's kingdom there forever by force. Uh, But it doesn't work like that. He chose a donkey, a little pack animal, a lowly beast of burden. As Zechariah had prophesied, he came humbly bringing peace. The kingdom of God is being ushered in, but it's not like any earthly kingdom anyone has ever seen before or since. This is not the kingdom that the people expected, not what they wanted, and so they rejected him, or they didn't even notice that he was the Lord. So you need to know that Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations. He doesn't always meet your expectations. See, when God doesn't live up to your expectations, there's a temptation, isn't there, to kind of turn your back on God and say, well, I'm going to seek after my dreams and aspirations. I was hoping God was going to help me here, but he doesn't seem to want to. So I'm going to pursue them anyway. I was hoping God would find me that great job I was looking for, but he doesn't seem to want to. So I'm just going to go for it. I was hoping God would, I was hoping God was going to find me that marriage partner, but he doesn't seem to want to. So I'm just going to go for it. I was hoping God was gonna gonna sort out my personal life. I've got real problems. He doesn't seem to want to, so I'm gonna sort it out my way. Remember, the first part of what we talked about, he's revealed himself as Lord. He's under no obligation to meet up with your expectations. He's not. If he chooses to give me a life of suffering, or hardship, or disappointment, or failure. Well, he's the Lord. That's okay. If Christ doesn't fit my expectations, it's madness for me to reject him on that basis, as the crowds in Jerusalem did. He, he's never promised, look in scripture, he's never promised anybody a happy life. That's not the deal. That's not the promise. We sang, didn't we? Um, you give and take away. We, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. That's saying, in the, in the good times and the bad times, it's from, it's from Job in the Old Testament. You give me stuff, I'm going to say, praise you, God. You take stuff away, I'm going to say, praise you, God. That's a declaration of our steadfastness uh, to, to God. So don't be like these people here. You go, oh, it doesn't meet my expectations, I'm going to look somewhere else. If God doesn't meet your expectations, what do you do? Well, change your expectations. It's that simple, really. It sounds trite. But if you change your expectations to be in line with God's expectations, ah, now you're onto something. Because God's perfect, and He knows what's best for you. And if they're His expectations, you better get with the program. We can't hold God to ransom. You know, meet my expectations, or else I'm going to re- reject you. It doesn't work like that. If He has to meet up to my expectations, in a way, I'm putting myself above Him. In a way, I'm making myself God, and Him subservient to me and my expectations. It doesn't work like that. Let's not be like those people in Jerusalem. Let's not be like that. Let's acknowledge Jesus. Let's acknowledge God as our true King and Saviour and Lord and our Sovereign. And let's receive from him whatever good things he has for us, whether they're challenging or not. So can we get the band back now? We're going we're to move on at this point. We're going to close out... I'd love to pray with anybody that's been stirred by what's happening this morning, what God's been saying to us and through us. At the end, we're going to have the prayer team praying, and I'm going to be with the prayer team. If anything, if you've arrived this morning with anything on your heart or anything on your mind, and you just want to pray about it, come down the frontier, pray with some folks, chat with some folks. it would be tremendously helpful. If there's anything that's been covered this morning that's stirred your heart, I'd love to pray with you about that. I really would, particularly If you feel like God doesn't meet up to your expectations in some way, I'd love to pray with you. So let me just pray now, and then Jamie's gonna lead us, and then we'll worship again. So why don't you stand please?